0: Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. You know, I have the highest love and respect for my brothers and sisters in Christ. So each day when we're here and for these two hours of of study and teachings, it's my prayer that it's a, a joyous, respectful classroom where we learn and grow and teach and show mercy and above all, love each other. So today, I've got Dr. Leighton Flowers, who's going to join me in hour one. And then in hour two, Carmen Laburge is going to join me. So I'm going to start with flowers and end with sunshine. That's going to be the show today. I hope you get a chance to hear both hours. In hour two, Carmen's going to talk about John chapter 18, and it's going to be incredible. So make sure, if you miss the show, to catch it on podcast, because I know you will enjoy it. Dr. Leighton Flowers is a uh, director of evangelism and apologetics for texas baptists in 2018 and he preaches on a, a wide range of biblical subjects and he also travels to churches of all sizes to conduct seminars that specialize on evangelism and apologetics and you know i love apologetics and i'm always wanting to learn lots of uh lots more on apologetics so i'm always glad to have uh people who specialize in this on the show and uh dr Layton flowers is uh can be found at his website is soteriology 101com dot Layton, welcome back.
1: Hi, thank you, Bill. Glad glad I could be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you are too. Last time you were on, it was uh, interesting for me. I always want to learn about about uh, uh, God's Word, and you talked about Calvinism quite a bit. And I had a number of questions that came in. I had some people that weren't happy, uh, so it's you know it's always interesting. Um, So I want to start by setting the stage. I've got a question for you. So let's just say on the table, I have three crayons. I have a red one, a white one, and a periwinkle blue, okay? So I bring 10 people into a room, one at a time, and I ask them to pick out the red crayon. So after 10 people, it turns out that all 10 correctly identified the red crayon. So as followers... Of Christ, and we all have come in contact with the Word of God and have studied to show ourselves approved, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. When it comes to in, uh, biblical interpretation, is there a red crayon?
1: Well, I believe yes. There is one uh, obviously correct interpretation of the text, but we are fallen, uh, flawed human beings, and therefore we're going to make mistakes. That's what, you know, free will is all about is that we have the freedom uh, to err. And uh, so, you know, to err is human, as they say. We we have uh, differing teachers that have influenced us over the years. All of us have different backgrounds uh, different philosophies of life, uh, especially in the westernized world, we we tend to see things more from a westernized, individualized perspective, whereas the eastern world sees things more from a collectivist, you know, familial perspective, and therefore, they can read the exact same sentence that we read, but come away with a little different understanding, and so that that's not to say it's all relative, uh, the text means whatever you think it means, I, I don't believe that at all, I believe the Bible is inspired, it's, it's uh, profitable for reproof and correcting and training in righteousness. It's breathed by God. Uh, But it's our job to study it well and to understand it rightly. And sometimes we just get it wrong. And that's a part of uh, the fallenness of our uh, human nature that sometimes we misinterpret even God's word.
0: Mm -hmm. But this is where the arguments can happen in in the body of Christ. Because one person will say, I've got it right. And the other person is going to say, I've got it right.
1: Right. And the illustration I've used on my broadcast sometimes is, you know, to point as at the those pictures, like they're called bleaks where, uh, you know, it looks like an old woman and a young woman or it Mm -hmm. looks like a rabbit and a duck. And and in reality, it it is both of those pictures. Those pictures are drawn to be that way. Um, And and sometimes when you only see it from one perspective, I remember that old woman, young woman uh, bleak that I remember getting so frustrated because I could not see the old woman. I could only see the young one, and all my friends could see both of them, and it, and it just drove me nuts for the longest time. And we've all experienced things like that with different pictures that, sure. you know, we're trying to focus our eyes just right. And sometimes we can get like that with our our theology. We we uh, adopt a certain way of reading a text. We've understood it that way maybe most of our lives. Maybe our first teachers taught us to understand it a, a, a one way, and that's just the only way we can see it um and and it takes us you know having discipline to put down our presuppositions and to back away from the text and say maybe i've misinterpreted this maybe i've brought some wrong presuppositions to this text and to really engage the text as a first century jewish audience would have engaged it um and and try to understand it rightly from you know it's its original perspective and that's a part of what what is called hermeneutics mm-hmm. uh, I know it's just a big word but it just it means rightly interpreting and using the right tools and um, and really understanding the historical context and really diving in to to get to the, the the base level meaning of what the scripture means because it can't mean something different now than it meant originally what it meant in its original context is what it still means today but sometimes because we're so separated from that context we can lose its original meaning uh, and, and, and can lead us down uh, the wrong trail. Um, and, and both sides are going to think, obviously, that their perspective is the right one <laughs> and that the other one is the wrong. But what my goal is as a professor and when I teach and travel and speak is I want to educate, not indoctrinate. In other words, and I want people to understand here's the, what the best scholars from both sides have said about this text and l- allow them to have a good education on on what people have said about the, a particular text and let them, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, come to what they believe is the right interpretation. Um, I, you know, I, I want people, obviously, to believe what I believe because I, I feel like I've, I've come to the right conclusions. But, um, but I, I want to also be uh, forthright and honest with people that to say, you know, there are some very well-intending, good scholars who disagree with me. Over certain interpretations of of certain texts, and that's okay. I can still love and get along with them. Uh, I think they mean well, but I, I think we do need to to go the extra mile to try to to understand the best uh, scholars from the other perspective and give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't don't think that just because somebody disagrees with you, that they're a nefarious sneaky snake that's trying to deceive <laughs> you or something like that. Yeah. Um, but understand that you know Christian brothers and sisters are going to come to different conclusions because of maybe some false presuppositions they're, they're bringing to a text. Mm-hmm.
0: Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest, and Leighton and I had a, a, gu- a guest on earlier today. I, I pre-recorded him, and he's a prof- professor and uh, has, has his PhD, and I said to him, are you a, a Calvinist or an Arminius?" And he said, I- I'm a Cal-mi- Calminiist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I thought, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, Yeah, probably not original, but it's just the idea that yeah, there's going to be people that are going to have be in both camps.
1: Right. And there's going to be some some scholars that don't want to take a hard line on one view or the other uh or they they may agree with certain aspects of what Arminius taught and certain aspects of what Calvin taught um or you know they don't want to be pinned down in into one camp or the other. And I understand that. I I've I've been there in my own journey. And and the reason I talk about this, I wrote my dissertation on it, is is not to be divisive, but to bring clarity, because at least in our culture right now, the, the Calvinistic leaning or Reformed leaning interpretation has has been really resurging, and it's very predominant online. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the non-Calvinist scholars have not been as good about getting their interpretation and their explanations out there. The Calvinists, at least right now in this time in history, have done a lot better really explaining why they believe what they believe. And and it's been part of my goal is just to help people to see the other side, to help them understand there has been a very robust, uh, very deep intellectual uh, history of non-Calvinistic or what I've told, coined as provisionistic, provisionism, the idea that God provides for all people. Uh, whosoever will uh, means really anyone can be saved. That perspective, I want to be known more uh, and and for people to be really, engage with both, both sides of this context.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me look at 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So that they will come to their senses. That sounds like there's a, a, a moment of clarity that comes upon a person, that
1: they come to their senses and then make a decision. Right, absolutely. And, and the reason I think Paul's giving that instruction is that we're going to win, as they say, more flies with honey than vinegar. I think the Proverbs teaches that it's through the sweetness of speech comes education. Um, in other words, uh, by being kind some, to someone, you're, you're going to show them the, the level of respect. You're going to help them to understand, understand they're, they're being understood and heard. Um, and you're going to more likely win them over to your viewpoint if you treat them with respect and with kindness. And I think that's what Paul is saying. If if you're just shouting people down, you're throwing rocks at them, you're trying to burn them at the stake. <laughs> so so much of our, our history is marked with these kinds of, I think, bad behaviors, um, and and I, as Christians, we need to follow this instruction to, to be kind and gentle so that we can win people over with, uh, with prayer and with patience, not with fire and sword. Mm-hmm.
0: Leighton, if you were to ask the average person in the, at church, are you a, a Calvinist or an Arminianist, what would they even respond? Would, would a lot of people say, I don't even know what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, I mean a good number of people aren't real well educated on the doctrinal perspectives, um, and, and I wouldn't even necessarily side obviously with either one of those camps, though obviously I would lean more towards Arminianism than I would towards Calvinism. Um, there are certain aspects of Arminianism that I would disagree with. And so that's one of the reasons I've kind of coined the term provisionist, because it really is, is focusing upon God's provision. God provides for all. Yes, we're dead in sins and our trespasses, but God provides for dead sinners. He provides a life-giving truth. And, and if you believe in him uh, and you trust in him, then you will get new life. Mm-hmm. Uh, as John twenty thirty one says, these things were written so that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life. So how do you get new life? by believing. right, And that's our responsibility. Uh, and so he brings the solution. He brings the provision, and we're responsible for what we do with that provision. So it's God's initiative. He's he's the one who's bringing the light, the truth, and we are responders. So we're not acting on our own. We're not saving ourselves like sometimes we're falsely accused of believing, but instead, no, we're responding to the initiative of God's grace and his goodness and his provision. And he's not provided just for a select few. He's provided for every single human being, because he has created us all in his image. He desires us all to have a relationship with him. He desires for the salvation of all men, as it says many times throughout the text. And and I, therefore, I believe he's provided the means of atonement for all men, uh, meaning every single man, woman, boy, and girl. And that's, that's what I'm seeking to defend, because I think that is a strong and, and a true biblical doctrine. Um, and so uh, I, I try to treat my Calvinistic brothers. Uh, having been a Calvinist myself for ten years, I, I'm treating them with respect as much as I can. I'm trying to let them uh, speak for themselves. I can't represent all forms of the Calvinistic doctrine, obviously, because they're not a monolithic group. There's many different kinds of Calvinists, but um, I do try to play them for themselves. Uh, you know, read their own confessions for themselves, and then I contend with those those conclusions. By by going back to the text and and looking at proper hermeneutics, proper uh, context within the first century, understanding why they may be misunderstanding what the original author is saying in their context.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me take my first break. Doctor Leighton Flowers is my guest. When we come back, we're gonna I'm gonna ask Leighton to uh, give us an overview of what Calvinism teaches. And if you have any questions or 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 pushback or anything that you would like. Uh, elaboration on anything he said so far, let us know what it is. The text line is open 877 933 Welcome to the show. We're talking to Dr. Layton Flowers today, talking about Calvinism and Arminianism. And his website is uh soteriology101.com. You can learn more about him there. All right, uh, Layton, let's uh, if you would maybe give us a brief overview of of Tulip so we can understand what Calvinism teaches.
1: Yeah, TULIP is the acrostic that's been kind of popularized over the last, uh, you know, a decade or two or five or ten decades, I guess. It's been around for a while. And then it's just a kind of a, a mnemonic device to help you remember the main five points that have often been controversial within Calvinism. Obviously, Calvinists believe a lot more than these five points, and they're not limited to these five things, but they're just kind of an overview or, you know, a summary of, of the main, you know, points of contention that are often debated And the T stands for total depravity. And for the most part, um, we would agree with the concept that we're depraved, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're all uh, under condemnation because of our sin. But where we would differ with the Calvinists is that they also believe that the person's not only depraved, but they're so depraved that they can't respond positively, even to God's appeals to be reconciled from that depravity. In other words, they're born in a dead-like condition, uh, and, and dead, they interpret, I think they overinterpret it more literally to mean you can't even respond positively even to God's life-giving truth. And as I already mentioned, I think the Bible's pretty clear. Uh, John 540 is another great verse where Jesus says to the, the Pharisees, you know, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. He didn't say, I've refused to give you life so that you'll certainly come to me. And so the solution that the Bible gives for those who are spiritually dead, which spiritual dead means that you're separated due to your rebellion. It doesn't mean you're literally like a corpse that's just unresponsive. It means that you can't, uh, that you that you must be reconciled. You need to draw near, much like the prodigal son was said to be lost, but now he's found, he was dead, but now he's alive. Um, and so this this the T of TULIP is really the, the crux of, I think, the foundation of the entire Calvinistic system. And their and their claim is that we're all born in this condition where we will always reject the gospel. We will always say no to God because of the very nature we're born with. And I believe that that removes man's blameworthiness, because it ultimately is saying they're doing what they're doing, not based upon free choice, but based upon a nature, an innate nature they're just born with, and they can't do anything about it. and that And that really removes their blameworthiness. I think a person is blameworthy because they can belief they can follow God but they choose not to um, and so that that's the first point the second point is the you uh, which is unconditional election and it, that's just what it sounds like it's it's a it's an election or a choice that is unconditional meaning it's not conditioned upon faith it's not conditioned upon anything that you do uh, and it's made before the foundation of the world so ultimately it's a it's a choice that God, I think it would be arbitrary choice because it, it, it does, it's not based upon anything about you, but it's all about the arbiter who is God, who is making a unilateral decision before you're even created to save you. Um, and, and so therefore election is unconditional in that sense. Uh, the L stands for limited atonement. And this is a very controversial doctrine, even within the reform tradition. In other words, there's a lot of, of even Calvinists who disagree with the L uh, and only kind of higher five point Calvinists really hold up to this concept and idea that Christ only died for the elect, that that Christ didn't die for the sins of the world, but he died for the sins of just the elect. And, uh, and so that's what the L stands for is limited atonement. Now I stands for irresistible grace. Um, those who have been unconditionally elected and atoned for, Um, will irresistibly be drawn by God's grace. In other words, if he picked you before you were born, he's going to change your very nature and make you have new desires and make you want to come and to worship him. Because remember, you're born unable to want to worship him unless he's picked you, and then he causes you by an unconditional grace that he's given to you, an irresistible grace. He, He... makes you alive. Uh, It's called regeneration, some Calvinists will call that. And so you actually are made alive in order to repent and believe. Instead of repenting and believe so as to be born again, you're actually born again so as to repent and believe on Calvinism. And so in my estimation, they kind of get the cart before the horse there. And then the P is perseverance of the saints, which is the concept and idea that if you were chosen unconditionally and irresistibly graced, then he's going to irresistibly hold you uh, to, to keep you, and uh, he, you will uh, endure till the end if you're truly one of God's elect. And so that's kind of an overview summary of what Calvinists are teaching. Mm-hmm. If we are born spiritually dead, then how how can we
0: respond to the gospel? It's, it's God will regenerate us and then allow us through that
1: regeneration to repent and be saved? Yeah, I mean, th- this again, this is kind of based upon that concept of total depravity, meaning Corpse-like dead, okay. and and I don't think that the Bible is teaching that we're literally dead. Um, I think, like the church in Sardis, he says that you're you're you know you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and renew what remains. He doesn't mean literally you can't respond to the warning of Christ. What he's saying is you're in you're in rebellion. You're separated. You're a you're you're uh, a far distance. You're out in the far country. You're away from me. Draw near come back and renew what remains, you know, renew your first love is what he's saying to them. So deadness idiomatically in the first century never means that you can't respond to God's life-giving truth calling okay. you to reconciliation. And so that that's the the main point of contention, I think, with our Calvinist friends is they start on the wrong footing with anthropology, and they believe that God ultimately decreed that all people would be born in this corpse-like dead condition where they can't even respond to God's life-giving truth through the gospel. And I think that's the wrong foundation.
0: So let me read you a John Calvin quote. I'd like you to respond to it, Dr. Leighton Flowers. Calvin said, God arranges all things by his sovereign counsel in such a way that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death and are to glorify him by their destruction.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's called reprobation. Uh, And that's unique to Calvinism. We don't believe there are reprobates in the sense that people who are ultimately born doomed from the womb, uh, destined for destruction. In other words, uh, on Calvinism, everyone who's not elect unto salvation is a reprobate, is someone who is not chosen for salvation. And therefore, they have ultimately no hope of salvation. They're Mm -hmm. born literally doomed from the womb. And when you push back against that, because that obviously seems very unfair, it seems very unjust. And a lot of us push back on that. I go, that. That can't be right. And this is where Calvinists will often appeal to Romans 9. And and again, like I said before, I think they're seeing the, the duck and the rabbit thing. They're seeing it one way and we're seeing it another, that, that Romans 9 is not addressing that issue of reprobation. But instead, what Romans 9 is addressing is the hardening of Israel, that Israel, because they've grown Calloused in their self-righteousness and their rebellion, God is hardening them in their rebellion so as to bring about redemption through their rebellion, and that—that's what Paul's addressing. So he's not addressing this concept of people being born reprobate, but he's addressing Israelites who were known to be the chosen of God, the elected people of God, and they're growing calloused and hardened in Him. Despite His patience with them and His long suffering with them, He's using them in their rebellion in order to bring about redemption through Calvary. And so that that's why it gets a little bit um, confusing for some people, because when you read Romans 9 with a Calvinistic premise, it sounds like it's teaching Calvinism. But when you back away and you understand how Paul is addressing the nation of Israel, and that he, he spoke like this quite regularly when you understand the context, that he's actually saying that those same people who are hardened in Romans 9 are the same ones he goes on to say in chapter 11, uh, might be provoked to envy and saved. Uh, he even holds out hope. For their salvation so they can't be the quote unquote reprobate of, of John Calvin's systematic and and this is why I think the majority of scholars throughout Christian history have rejected this uh, interpretation, the Calvinistic interpretation. Most scholars, uh, most theologians, most pastors uh, throughout Christian history have have not been Calvinistic in interpreting those texts in a Calvinistic way. Mm-hmm. that doesn't make it right sometimes the, the, the minority can be right. But I don't think that's the case in this situation. I okay. think the, the Calvinists have a, 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 a big pill to swallow and a, a high bar to meet in order yeah. to uh, teach this concept of reprobation.
0: All right, we'll take a short break and be back with Dr. Leighton Flowers. If you have a question or concern or something you would like uh, to ask Dr. Flowers, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
1: Show
0: with Bill Arno. Pride time, drive time. let's get it started the afternoon show with Bill Arno. welcome to the show if you just jumped in your car and tuned in thanks for doing that we're talking about Calvinism today with dr. Leighton flowers and uh, my producer Rosie was saying to the art Do the Armenians have an acrostic the way the Calvinists have tulip? (laughs)
1: Not, not, not in the same way. There's some that have tried. uh, There's one that's a poinsettia, poinsettia. (laughs) That's a really long one. There's another one that's a rose. I've heard roses before. Uh, On ours, we even have one that's called provide and we use the acrostic provide. So yeah, uh, other groups have attempted to, you know, produce acrostics, but um, tulip is the most famous one on the Calvinistic side. Mm -hmm. Question came
0: in from uh, Terry. He said, regarding this argument, what about Judas? Wasn't uh, he destined to betray Jesus. It sounds like the deck was stacked against him before he was born, and Jesus said that it wouldn't have wouldn't it have been better if he hadn't ever been born?
1: Yeah, and this is where it gets into a lot of philosophical speculations. Um, and and what we would say is that you know because the Bible teaches that pride and lust are not from the Father but from the world. Uh, and that he doesn't tempt anyone to evil. Uh, you know, those passages out of James 1, and that's a first quote is from 1 John 2.16, um, that God is not the author of Confucian. He's not the author of sin. He's not the one who brings about rebellion. So he's not causing uh, Judas to do the things that Judas does. Instead, because he knows Judas, he knows his heart. He's able to use Judas in his rebellion to bring about his purposes through his free choice to rebel. And so we do believe God has knowledge, and because he's knowledgeable, because he has all knowledge, he's able to use even rebellious people to bring about his purpose through their rebellion. Um, and again, there's a lot of philosophical speculation. Molinism gets into the speculations about that. The eternal now view of God, uh, spoken of by Boethius and later by C.S. Lewis, gets into the philosoph- philosophical discussions. Um, some of the dynamic perspectives start speculating about how God may not know everything exhaustively, and uh, I, I don't agree with their conclusions either, but all of them are trying to deal with that issue of omniscience. And though that's hard for us to fully grasp, I, I think that we have to be biblical first and foremost, and I don't think the Bible ever puts the blame onto God, uh, holy God, for our sins and therefore, we should never come to a conclusion where God is ultimately destining or decreeing, or causally determining the sin of, of creation.
0: Okay, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Leighton Flowers. The Calvinist teaching it gives God, a, you know, really a hundred percent credit for salvation, uh, whereas you seem to say that man gets some percentage of the credit. How can God? Uh, how can God get all the credit if? we're making some contribution to our salvation. Because I I think of my coming to faith in Christ, did did God lead me to himself and then give me the ability to make the decision? I don't, I would say, I don't know.
1: I think so. Yeah, but. and and sometimes there, there's a little bit of conflating going on with some Calvinists who push that direction. Like, are you saving yourself? Are you contributing to your own salvation? And and I would just point out that that faith in believing in Jesus doesn't contribute to your salvation. Uh, you know, faith and repentance don't do don't do anything. Atonement is what does the work of salvation. So the the merit is based upon the goodness of Christ. And so confessing that you're not a perfect, and confessing that you um, uh, need help does not cause you to be righteous. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to you. And so the way I've explained it before is like if you imagined a pie chart. And some Calvinists will say, if you know, salvation is a pie chart. Then what Arminians and provisionists are doing, they're giving a little sliver of that slice, that that pie, like one percent credit to 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 man, and and ninety nine percent credit to God. And what we Calvinists we're doing, they'll say, is we're giving one hundred percent credit to God because He's the one who ultimately uh, causes everything. Um, and in their well-meant, you know, intentions, well, well-intended efforts to give God all the credit for salvation, they've unfortunately also given God all the blame for all sin and all rejection of God, and and I don't think that's a biblical way of looking at it. Instead, I, I would break it up into two separate pies. Um, there's the pie of salvation, which is 100% God's decision. He chooses who He saves, but. God gives us choices, and so that's our pie, and we're 100% responsible for our choices. So if we were to use the prodigal son analogy, then the prodigal is 100% responsible for his sin and his rebellion. He's also 100% responsible for humbling himself and returning home. But the father, and the father alone, is 100% responsible for the restoration. He, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to restore the son just because he came home, uh, and just because he asked for it. He, he's, not, he's not obligated to do that. He chooses to graciously because he's a good father. And so when he kills the fetid calf, when he gives him the golden ring, that's all 100% the grace of the father. And when you conflate those two separate choices and make them into one pie, into one choice, and call it all salvation, then it sometimes it muddles the water, it conflates the two issues, and it gets people to, uh, you know, adopt a worldview that is not necessarily uh, from the Bible. Mm Hmm.
0: Leighton, here's another question that came in. When we lead someone to Christ, they believe and pray to receive Jesus. How can I determine if they are born again or not? Do I have to see change, but I don't see them enough to know?
1: yeah, sometimes we we don't know the heart. God is the one who searches the heart, and we we're not responsible for that. We're responsible to teach them the truth, uh, to help them to understand, you know what is right, what is wrong, to lead them to the scriptures. Uh, it would be obviously best to disciple them, not just to evangelize. Uh, and sometimes that's where we fall short. and um, and what I encourage people when I do my work when evangelism is that we're called not just to make converts. we're called to make disciples. and therefore, once somebody comes to faith, uh, helping them to plug into a local fellowship where they're being discipled and taught godly principles on how to live life is so important. But we can never know the true heart of an individual. We just have to trust uh, that, that God's going to do that work in their lives. And, um, and, you know, there's some things that we, we just can't see. I, I've heard, heard one pastor I always remembered saying, we, we can see the fruit and only God can see the root you know, we, we only know what we see from the outside. And obviously, if a person's life never changes and they're, they're living exactly the way they were before, then there's a lot of reason, obviously, to doubt whether their conversion was genuine.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Leighton, here's a two-for-one question. Um, if God loves everyone, as you say, then even why did Paul say, Jacob I loved, es- Esau I hated, and then how do Calvinists get an accurate picture of a loving God with their view?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, that, that passage out of Romans 9 is actually a quote from Paul from Malachi, and he's actually quoting two different passages, one from Genesis and one from Malachi, the first book of the Old Testament, and then the last book of the Old Testament. There's like 1,500 years between these, these two quotes, and so sometimes people, I think, misunderstand what Paul is trying to say. you, you got to remember, it was very common in, in that Language to refer to the name of a national head like Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. So Mm -hmm. Jacob represented Israel. Esau represented the Edomites. And so that quote out of Malachi is actually representative of the Edomites 1500 years after Esau had long died. And and it was a a rebuke for their rebellion. But I think we also miss what the word hated is is used, how it's used idiomatically in the first century. You, You may recall out of Luke 14, where it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, he doesn't literally mean to despise and reject your father and mother. Otherwise, you know, why, why would he say to honor your father and mother? And, and so idiomatically, what he's saying is you must choose me over them. In other words, you're following me instead of them, you're following me. And that's exactly the way this, this idiom is used here in this text, is that God has chosen Israel over the Edomites. He has chosen this brother to be the seed through which the promise would come over the other seed, the other nations. And so election's all about God choosing the nation of Israel, but he's not choosing the nation of Israel to the neglect of all the other nations of the world. That's not what he says to Abraham when he first selects him, uh, and he, he talks to him about his election in Genesis 12, 3. He says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So in other words, election's not about God choosing nations and individuals to the neglect of other nations and individuals. It's about God choosing the nation of Israel and certain messengers from that nation to the benefit of the entire world. And sometimes Calvinists, I think, take verses out of their context, and they apply it to individualized sociological salvations, salvation of individuals to the neglect of other people who are reprobate. And that's not the intention of the original authors at all. And so I've written a book actually called The Potter's Promise in which I go line by line through Romans 9. And this is one of the verses that I I tackle showing the historical context of those quotes for those that want to study more deeply.
0: Yeah. Leighton, let's look at Romans 9 uh, where it says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use?
1: Well, right. And a lot of times that passage is, is used to support Calvinism as if, if, as if, you know, Paul is saying here, you know, God has the right to shape out of this lump of humanity some pots for salvation and some pots for damnation. That's the way they're reading that verse. And if you come in with that presupposition, that's exactly what it sounds like. You're like, oh, that, well, I guess I'll be a Calvinist. But that's not what Paul is addressing. He's addressing the nation of Israel. And so out of this lump of the nation of Israel, which if you look back to Jeremiah 18, that's where this is probably being borrowed from, where he, he compares uh, uh, the nation of Israel to a lump of clay. And he he even says in that chapter, if you look back at 18, that if you do this, then I will shape and mold you for this purpose. But if you grow marred in my hands, I have the right as the sovereign to reshape and remold you for my own purpose. And what you got to remember is the nation of Israel has grown marred in the potter's hand. They have gone wrong. They've become self-righteous. And if God wants to reshape and reuse them and remold them for a common use, to cry out, crucify him, so as to bring about his purpose, then that's his right as the sovereign. Um, and so it's not about him choosing certain people arbitrarily before they're born for reprobation and other people for salvation. It's about God using this nation of Israel for his own purpose. And, and I always point people to, to recognize that just because he's referring to a clay pot here doesn't mean that the, the pottery doesn't have a, a level of responsibility in this process. Because, for example, over in Second 2 Timothy 2.20, Paul, again teaching, same author here, he's teaching. In a large house, there are not only gold and silver implements, but also implements or or vessels of earthenware, some for honor and others for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself for these things, he will be an implement for honor, a vessel of honor. In other words, even though he's using clay pots as an analogy, he's not saying the clay pot doesn't have some responsibility here. The, The clay pot needs to repent so as to be used for an honorable use. And the same is true of Israel. If they repent they can be grafted back in. They can be used also for honor. And so some people read this as kind of God saying either either you're arbitrarily shaped for good or evil, either you're arbitrarily shaped for reprobation or salvation. And that's not at all what Paul is is getting at here in this text.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, let me take a break. Dr. Leighton Flowers is my guest, Director of Evangelism and Apologetics. And uh, Leighton, when I come back, I want to ask you about a question that came in. I think this is right out of Ephesians chapter 1. How about those who uh, foreknew before the world he also predestined? That seems to suggest a Calvinistic view. We'll take a short break and be right back with Dr. Leighton Flowers. love for you to share your story about why you love faith radio and what has faith radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live we want to hear from you your story can encourage others and glorify god share what you love about faith radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today Welcome back. My guest is Dr. Layton Flowers. You can learn about him at Soteriology101.com. All right, Layton, let me ask you this. This is out of Ephesians chapter one. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. From a Calvinistic uh, lens, I would say
1: checkmate yeah we talked briefly about this in our first interview, and I think it's uh, obviously one of the major proof texts that Calvinists will use and I always like to back up at the beginning and look at who he's addressing. He's addressing the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, and so this term in him is used by Paul all throughout this this first chapter, which is really just a long run on sentence and the, the term in him is very important because it, it addresses who he's talking about. so every time you see us in him. He's talking about the faithful in Christ, and so he has elected the faithful in Christ to be made holy and blameless, and this, this has been his plan from the very beginning. This has always been God's plan, and so it's not saying he's chosen certain individuals arbitrarily before they're ever born to be become believers. Uh, it's saying that he has chosen for the faithful in Christ to become holy and blameless, Uh, And a good illustration of this, you know, is one that I've heard before that I've used is like if if there was a a big fortress that God had built and he said "A storm is coming, if you get inside the fortress you will surely live. If you stay outside the fortress, you will surely die. Well, the storm comes, everyone outside the fortress dies, everyone inside the fortress lives. Well, you could rightly say it was predestined that those in the fortress would live, and it was predestined that those in the fortress would die. But you wouldn't be saying God determined who would and would not get into the fortress. You're just simply saying the destiny has been determined beforehand Mm. for those who are in the fortress versus those who are outside the fortress. Well, in Christ, God is destined beforehand that you will be made holy and blameless. He is destined beforehand for seven spiritual blessings, actually are listed there in Romans chapter one, that all these, these blessings have been destined beforehand for those who are in Christ, but it's your responsibility to get into Christ. And how do you do that? Well, read verse 13. Those who believe in him are marked in Christ. And so when those who heard the gospel, when you believed, you were marked in him. So you're not marked in him before you're ever created. You're marked in him when you believe and those who are in him have been destined beforehand for glory. Those those who are in him have been destined or marked out beforehand to be made holy and blameless. And so I, I think, again, it's just the duck and the rabbit situation, where yeah. if you come to this text with the lenses of Calvinism on, then it sounds like, oh yeah, that means he chose me before I was ever born to become a believer so that I would be holy and blameless. But it never says that. It only tells us that God is destined for believers to become holy and blameless. It mm. never says he's destined certain people to become believers.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Layton Flowers is my guest. Layton, talk about atonement. Is that an individual personal thing or is it something else?
1: Well, atonement is God's provision uh, through Christ. And the reason that Christ died is for um, you know, our benefit and for our, the, our blessing. And, and it glorifies God, obviously. And so atonement is applied by grace through faith. Uh, it's not, in other words, like I said before. It's not because we merit our own salvation or we merit the atonement. Uh, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, well, then why did Jesus have to die? If if faith earns or merits his salvation, then Jesus didn't need to atone for the sins of Abraham. But we all know that's not the case. Just because uh, he believed, that's not enough. Um, it's it's faith doesn't save you. Uh, confessing that you. Uh, have done wrong doesn't uh, atone for your sins. It just because, for example, if you call a credit card company and says, "I," you say, "You know, I, I can't pay my debt." Are there, is a credit card company to go, "Oh, okay. Well, you confess you can't pay your debt, so therefore you're forgiven." Well, no. <laughs> the Atonement is the payment of the debt, and so um, when when Christ pays the debt, of the sin of the world, uh, he is providing the means by which anyone and everyone can be saved. Much like when the serpent was lifted in the desert. Uh, whoever looks to the serpent in faith will be healed. But if you don't look to the serpent, then that that atonement is not actualized. It's not it's not applied to you. Um, you must look to him for healing, and that's what salvation's all about. Jesus compared himself to the serpent lifted in the desert, because of that very reason. He's the one who is the atonement, the provision for the world, so that anyone and everyone can look to him for healing. Mm-hmm.
0: Very good. So here's another question that just came in. How does our free will play into the sovereignty of God as it concerns him knowing who will be saved before we know it? Can we surprise God with our faith? Therefore, doesn't he know it before it happened?
1: Yeah, well, of course, we believe that God knows all things. And there's some mystery with revol- you know, evolving around God's knowledge, as I mentioned before. But even Jesus, when he was here on earth, now he was, in you know, uh, as a human— And therefore, there's arguments and speculations about what he knew in his uh, incarnation. But there was times where he says he marveled at their unbelief. And there are other times where he was uh, amazed by the faith of this particular person and that particular person, which seems to make more sense uh, under our perspective than it does a Calvinistic perspective. At least it makes more sense to me for him to marvel at their unbelief because they're not, uh, you know, born— in this condition, like the Calvinist says, of Tulip, where they can't believe. It doesn't seem you would you know, marvel at their unbelief if they were born unable to believe. And so the fact that he marvels at their unbelief seems to suggest they really should believe this, because it's so it's so intuitive, it's so uh, easy to see. And, and so there are times in which the, the Scriptures present God as reacting, in a sense, in time to humanity. Um, and, and that's a part of the Incarnation, where God condescends to our level— Uh, One great illustration I remember hearing just briefly is when Nolan Ryan was big. I remember hearing this when I was just a kid. You you, you drive by Nolan Ryan's house and you see him playing with his five-year-old. He's not going to be throwing the 100-mile-an-hour fastball. He's going to be throwing the underhanded pitch real Mm -hmm. slow. Doesn't mean he doesn't have the power to throw that <laughs> that fastball. It means he chooses to to come down to the level of his of his child, and and I think that's the way God works with humanity. He comes down to our level and he works with us, and he interacts with us as a, as a real person. Uh, and sometimes that can get a little confusing for some people, and especially when you get into all the the philosophical uh, issues that are uh, in, in, entwined within that 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 discussion. But I, I think the Bible is written for even fishermen to understand with, you know, uh, v- very low IQ and l- low education. All of us can understand the simplicity of the gospel, and that is that God loves all people. He's provided the means for all to be saved, and that whoever trusts in him will be, will be, will be saved.
0: Mm-hmm. Legend also has it that the five-year-old son, after getting the underhand pitch, said, Hey, Dad, is that all you got? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's right. And so, that didn't so, turn out so well wait, for the so, kid, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> just wait. Yeah, I don't want to talk that's about exactly, that, though. That's, yeah. That's great. I love So it. you're a big oh, sports
0: fan. I know uh, you've talked in the past of being kind of addicted to sports, and you kind of backed away from it. But are you going to watch the game tonight? World Series?
1: You know, I you know I'm not a big baseball guy. Oh, okay, uh, you know I'll, I'll do the football stuff. Okay, <laughs> my Cowboys and everything like that. Okay, but um, but I've, I've yeah I, I did watch a lot more sports back in the day than than I do now. That's I
0: know for sure. All right, let's get back to business. All right, what about um, Romans three, where it says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one.
1: Yeah, and we would just say, absolutely, we agree. Uh, But proof that no one does good doesn't mean no one can confess that fact in light of the gospel. And that's where the Calvinistic system takes us. You know, I used the illustration before. You can say no one can call the president and get him on the phone. Okay, does that mean you can't answer the phone if the president calls you? Um, Of course, no one is righteous in and of himself. But... What is the solution for that? You know, that's what Paul's point is. If you read down in verse 21 and following, his point is, no one's righteous in and of themselves, so what is your only hope? Trust in the righteousness of Christ. And what the Calvinist seems to be saying is, no one is righteous, no, not one. And by the way, believing in Jesus, that would be righteous, and therefore you can't do that either. But that's not what Paul ever says. He says, no one's righteous in and of themselves. No one's righteous by the law. Therefore, trust in the one who fulfilled the law for you. And so I, I just think the Calvinists have, have read Paul wrongly to suggest that, well, believing in Jesus is a good thing. It's a righteous thing to believe in Jesus. And there, therefore, that would be a good thing that merits salvation. Therefore, you can't do that. Well, if Paul ever said that, then I would be on board with you. But Paul never draws that conclusion. Paul seems to suggest over and over again that, that our only solution— to our sin and our unrighteousness is to believe and trust in Christ. And there's nowhere in scripture that I can find that explicitly teaches that you can't do that, mm-hmm. that you can't trust in Christ. Yeah. Um, and that's the foundation of the Calvinistic system. The T of their tulip says you're born unable to put your trust in Christ, even in light of the gospel. And again, I don't find that established anywhere in the pages of scripture.
0: All right, late now late I have to squeeze in one more question. How about okay. when Jesus said, you don't believe because you are not my sheep.
1: It didn't say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. Right. And this is, I think, a misunderstanding of what's happening at the time of Christ. Remember, if you look at the whole context of of John, especially, but especially John chapter 10 and leading up to it, throughout the book of John, you continue to hear Jesus say, I and the Father are one. What I speak, I'm speaking what the Father speaks. The reason you don't believe me is because you didn't believe the Father before me. You didn't believe in Moses, therefore you're not going to believe in me because he spoke of me. You hear that over and over and over again in the book of John. And so what he's saying here, you're not a sheep. What is a sheep? It's a follower. You're not a follower of God. You're not a follower of Yahweh. Therefore, you don't believe me. If you believed me, you would believe the Father. And if you believe the Father, you would believe me. So a sheep is not idiomatic for elect it's idiomatic for follower. So if you followed the father, you would also follow me. But the reason you won't follow me is because you're not a follower. You're not a sheep of the father. Mm. Sheep, the sheep of the father will hear my voice and recognize it because we speak the same. We have the same voice. And sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. And the reason you don't recognize my voice is because you're not a follower of the father. So that, oh. that's the point he's making.
0: Leighton, we covered a lot in, a, in an hour. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's really nice having you back on. Glad to do it, Bill. It Anytime. went fast, didn't it? It did. Goodbye. Yeah. Sure, yeah here. Well, have a great rest of the day. You too. God, you God bless. bless. Bye bye. Dr. Leighton Flowers was my guest. You can go learn more about him at soteriology101.com. All right. After a short break, we're going to be back with Carmen LeBurge and open your Bibles to John chapter 18. Be right back.